Zone world, as unbelievable as it is to me, my guest today is the legendary Shah Rock of Funky Four Plus One. She was unquestionably the first female MC in hip hop. They were the first hip hop group to play on national TV. They were one of the first hip-hop groups to have records out. And even more importantly, for years before that, they were one of the pioneering groups in the pre-record era. I do want to say, if you're not familiar with them or with that era, check out Shaw Rock and Lisa Lee on WHBI. Check out Funky 4 Plus 1 at 123 Park. Check out the best of Funky 4 Plus 1. I guarantee that it will broaden your musical horizons. I want to say that this one was done over the phone, so it is kind of a different sound, but you'll get used to it. The art, as always, is by Mike Riley. Check him out at MikeRileyComics.com. And we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at splicetoday.com. Let's, Let's go, go in. I was born Sharon Yvette Green. I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I left around seven or eight years old. My parents migrated to New York. And we first moved to the Bronx. It was like in 73. We moved to the Bronx. Well, I think it was like 1970. 1970, and, and I wrote about it in my book. We moved to the Bronx, and we stayed there for a while, and then we moved to Harlem on 142nd Street in uh, Manhattan. And from there, I moved back to the Bronx. And so my upbringing, you know, was was a very good one. You know, my mom and, and, and stepfather was really into music, and um, actually they were connoisseurs of music, and we listen to everything from jazz to blues to country music, you know, to soul. You know, these are the, yeah. you know, type of influences that, that was in my life at that time. And um, music was a thing of our household. And so we were exposed, and I say we as in, as in my siblings, and I were exposed to many different um, genres of music. And, you know, I, I just, it, it was just music was just a way of life for you know, my family growing up. And and how did you come upon this this early hip hop scene? Like like I read that you were, you know, at some of these real early cool herc parties and stuff like that. You know, the thing is nineteen seventy three was the year that, you know, the the elements were really like trying to come into place. Of course, we know that there has always been a DJ and has always been an MC. But in 73 was when all the elements had began to start coming together, as I know it. You know, of right. course, you know, you had, you know, you had the MC, um, you had the DJ, and then you had the MC. 
And then, you know, the, the D-girls and the B-boys were beginning to start breakdancing. And then you had, you know, graffiti, you know, coming into place and all of that, you know. But the thing is, is that when we when we begin to start talking about how I was influenced, you know, and some of the elements is because I had lived in the South Bronx. And, of course, you had the DJ. And, of course, you had my mom and my father that were connoisseurs of music. You know, um, I was introduced to some of the elements, you know, when I moved back to the Bronx. And, um, you know, I was around, you know, the elements. It wasn't until, I think, um, you know, like Rama 76, you know, when I was in, in high school, so that I had really started getting into, you know, like the music as far as uh, breakdancing, you know, becoming, you know, a B-girl. And for any, like, true MP that was out during the era that I, you know, that I came up in, most of us, you know, that was there from the onset of, of what we know now to be as the hip-hop culture was, um, or what we call hip, the hip-hop culture, you know, they started as a, a B-girl or B-boy and then transformed into that, um, you know, as an MC. Now, there was select crew. It wasn't a whole lot that was out there at the time, but the ones that was out there with me, you know, such as the, the Grandmaster, you know, uh, Sashes, you know, Melly Mel, you know, Kikrio, Raheem, uh, or, or, or let's just say, um, Keith Cowboy from Grandmaster Fashion and Furious Fine. Those were, you know, some of the people that I came up with, you know, and, and the elements of, of becoming an MC who, um, some of them, especially Calvary and ML or, you know, were, were B-boys. So we transformed for either B-girl or B-boy into MC. And as far as rap, like, say, you know, the I love that thing where, you know, DMC bigs you up for the way you influenced him. I and, never um, knew that. I never knew that. I never, after all of these years, I never knew that until, and, and let's give reference to, what he says, you know, just in case your audience don't know what he said. And we're talking about DMC from the legendary, you know, hip-hop, you know, group called Won't Run DMC. Yeah. And if I could generate or maybe say it the way that he do it, I, I may be, um, you know, at, not not him, but I, I can say, you know, um, paraphrasing or some of the things that he would say is that, you know, when he heard me as an MC, um, he felt like I was, what, doper than... 90% of the guys that were out there. Now, right. for him to say that and being a, a, a guy, you know, that I thought was kind of crazy, but I, I was excited, you know, I was honored because a person of their stature and his stature to say that and to say that, you know, I'm what made him want to do certain types of, 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 of rhymes or like when he heard me on the echo chamber, and for the audience who don't know what the echo chamber is, it's one of the legendary tools that I've used and, and, and other people have followed where I'll make my voice if I see a rhyme, then the person will, you know, like one of my man, managers that was handling the Brother Cisco and the Funky Four at that time would um, repeat, you know, what I say. So if I say, yes, yes, y'all, they'll say, yes, yes, y'all. Yes, yes, y'all. will repeat everything that I, I say, you know, you know, on a on delayed, you know, um, vibration. Now, when when DMC did their their album, I guess you know, tougher than leather. One of the songs that they wanted to do, DMC said to Jam Master J, which was which was producer at the time. You know, said I want you to make me sound like Shaw Rock on the Echo Chamber when we do this record. So I never knew that. So that means that for 
him to say that. So I inspired, you know, him to fly in a certain way. And, and for him to be a, a young man and that a woman did that as a, as opposed to any, you know, other, and I say this hum, humble to the audience that's listening, as opposed to any other, you know, female or male, you know, that's kind of kind of crazy for someone of their status to give you that much props. Yeah. So I say that I never knew how much I had influence as a female, even men. Not only did I influence women, but men that were coming up in the game as to a certain way to rhyme. Yeah, and I bring that up to, to ask, did you have somebody like that? Like the way he looks to you, did, did you have somebody that, that you thought like, oh, I want to Well, I like come that. from the era of the inception of hip-hop. You know, when we're talking about who informs me, I didn't come from the era of MC. Remember that I come from the inception of, of the culture. People who influenced me were James Brown, you know, Michael Jackson, Aretha Franklin, you know, um, Millie Jackson. You know, those were Nikki Giovanni, those were Elvis Presley. Those were the type of people who influenced me doing, coming up, you know, because you know, those were the, the type of artists that I was introduced to, you know, that really kind of like um, solidified who I was and, as an artist or the way that I, you know, articulate, you know, my words or try to rhyme, you know, to make um, people be able to hear what I'm saying, you know, and, and, and you know, really gravitate, gravitate to what I was trying to say. So those were my influences, you know, mm. R&D singers, you know, or rock singers. Those were my influence. So, like, rap was so new that you didn't look at, like, Melly Mel or somebody like that as your as your influence, necessarily. Melly Mel was, during the time, during the time that, uh, we're talking about the onset, you know, even though, right. you know, um, I, I started out, you know, um, as an MC to perfect the, um, one of the persons who I really, 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 really like as an MC, I would always reference Kelly Mel. I would always reference Kelly Mel. But when we talk about the people that really wanted me to get into, uh, you know, rhyming, you know, or performing or whatever, like those are the distinct people that I, I mentioned prior. But as an MC, I wanted to be able to continue to perfect my, um, the way that I can deliver. And Molly Mel from Grandmaster Flash in the Furious Five, he was the one who I used as, um, I can say, um, a, a personal, that was my mentor. Although he, didn't, he never knew it, he was my mentor. Because he was the type of performer, even at an early age, that could command the crowd. Now, I did that as well, but I wanted to be able to craft my, my skills so when people look at me at that time, they wouldn't just say that, oh, she's a good MC. I wanted to, or a good female MC. I wanted to be the best, the best that was out there at that time. And that's what I did. Do you remember your, your very first time getting on the mic? Yeah, I did. I did. The very first time that I get on, get on the mic was when I actually um, auditioned, you know, to be a part of a group. You know, a part of the Brothers Disco, but it was actually a group that later on became the Funky Four. 
So I got on a right. mic in the basement, you know, of, of, of a house that I was auditioning in from the legendary, you know, um, organization that's called the Brother Disco. There was actually an organization which the manager was uh, Jazzy D, who was putting together MCs for the Brother Disco. And so at first, you know, there was just two MCs that were there, which was KK Rockwell and then Keith Keith, which people know him as Keith Caesar. And I became the third MC. And then Raheem, that now people know that went on to the Furious Five, you know, was the fourth MC. So I was right. actually the original part of the Funky Four. It wasn't, you know, until I left, you know, the group along with Raheem that he went to go to the Furious Five and I came back. They had added two members, and I became the, uh, you know, the, the, the fifth member, which I became the plus one more. But getting back to the first time that, that I had gotten on the mic, it was the first time for the audition, but the actually first time performing on stage was actually at a local um, center that was inside, you know, and housing area that, that was in uptown in the Bronx that was called the Boston Seacourt Local Center. And so this is the first time that I had ever really spit rhymes to the public, and this happened at Boston Seacourt, you know, uptown in the uptown Bronx. How did it work back then? Was it like part freestyle, or you just had all this stuff ready to go? Well, well, how it worked for back then was that you wrote your rhymes, whether or not you had one, whether or not you had two, whether or not you had three. You wrote right. your rhymes, and back then, you know, there was no time limit, you know, of how many bars you spit when you rhyme. Unlike, you know, today, you may, oh, give me a hot 16, or give me a hot 8, you know, whatever. Right. When we started off, that was like, give, give it your best shot. So it didn't matter how long you went, you know what I'm saying? Your thing was to engage the crowd and let them marinate on what you were trying to set forth. So if you were a part of a group, then that means that the DJ knew your ride. So they knew exactly when you was going to finish or when it was time for you to pass the mic to the next MC that was a part of your group if you were a part of a group. And so with us, we were probably, uh, the, the Funky Four was like the first really like um, synchronized, organized group where we actually, you know, would um, make up rhymes, you know, far as, um, you know, like we would, we would make a rhyme for Gilligan's album, you know, and flip it, you know, and change it to a rhyme that we wanted to, you know, to, to have. Or right, we'll, we'll right. say certain things, you know, that um, we would have certain hooks to bring in the next person you know, on, uh, you know, on, on the rhyme. So you know when the ne- when it was time for the next person to come in because the only thing you would do, you know, you, we would say something like, the beat that makes you want to rap, you know, come on, shout, rock, cut out the crap, just get on yeah. the mic and start the rap and let everybody know that you can never be whack. Um, so that was the introduction to let the next board, next member time for you to come in. Even if that person didn't know your rhyme, it was time for you to come in because now they're bringing you in to do your thing, you know. Right, and so right. most most of us, you know, wrote our own rhymes. And so whether or not the person knew it or not, they be, you, you begin to eventually learn that person's rhyme. But the key to it was the hook on bringing you in. So even if you didn't know that person's rhyme or they just wrote a new rhyme, once they bring you in the hook, then you come in and do what you had to do. And, w- and what were those early shows say, the original Funky Four shows, what were they like? They were packed. They were packed. Mm. They were packed. It was like, you know, um, people would come from 
some in New York, you have many different boroughs. You know, cities. You know, you would have the Bronx. You would have Manhattan. You would have Queens. You would have Staten Island. You know, you would have Long Island. You would have Mount Vernon, New York. You know, you would have Connecticut, another state. But if people find out that there was a jam that was given through flyers, they will come and show up from all over, even from Brooklyn. You know, we're coming to show up from all over just to come to those those jams that were out in the park or yeah. those parties that were like a dollar or two dollars or three dollars to get in. So you're talking about young people that would travel from all over the world to hear Shabbat you know, or a city to hear Shabbat if they were in town or to hear, you know, Melly um, Mel, you know, or to hear, you know, the, the Funky Four or the Three with Five at that time just perform in the street or they would pay the one or two or three dollars get into the clubs when it was inside. And so, of course, you had, you know, your favorite different spots that were like the, the, the ultimate, you know, it, they were like the Madison Square Garden, you know, of, of hip-hop, which was one of the ones when, when hip-hop became a style was the T-Connection. You know, it had its own stage up, uptown in the Bronx where, you know, we would hold battles. We would, um, you know, just, you know, get on there and just, you know, do our show. So the, the people would come from all over you know, to pay, you know, to get in just to, to party, just to hear you rhyme, just to hear you to see the latest dancing, just to see a B-girl, a B-boy break dance on the floor, just to see you do the new style of the hustle, you know, the, the new style of a new dance that was out at that time, just to hear uh-huh. the music, just to hear James Brown, which is which was a main, main ingredient, main person that was, you know, his music is synonymous with the hip-hop culture, you know, if right, people right. do or do not know that, you know, it's like once you hear a James Brown song, you know, people just went ballistic, you know, from, from DJ Cool Herc's party, who is the father of hip-hop, you know, that, that really, um, besides my parents, you know, would, would play the, the songs that I love, you know, to listen to when I was a B-girl. At that early time, say, you know, from from starting to see Cool Herc to all these other DJs and everything to rapping yourself, did you realize that this was a, a special thing? I knew it was special for me because, and I knew, I knew it was special for me, but I felt like if every young person at that time would live, eat, and drink just the thought of going to a party and just listening to those breakbeats or going to an outside park camp and just listening to those breakbeats how you know it will uplift you as a person just to wait for that breakbeat to come on and then boom you just excited you just go off if I, I felt like if someone if, if, if I love all the elements and just that, then I, I know that they, they had to because they would show up in, 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 in drives of people at that time. So, right. no, I never assumed that it would go this far, but I knew it, it was something huge just because of what it meant to everybody that came, you know, to the podcast. Now, it was not people that even want to even talk about what was going on in the street. 
We couldn't even get our songs on the radio. That one may be, now you may see, you may, they, they didn't have a hip-hop station. Maybe only one song at one time in 1979, one song or hip-hop right. got on a radio station. And it wasn't until, like, the early 80s, you know, that they really began to start paying one or two or three, you know, at that time. But they wouldn't hear They wouldn't even play it. They wouldn't even play none of, none of rap music, you know what I'm saying, on radio stations. In 1979, the Sugar Hill Gang got on and maybe, like, one or two, two songs. But when we're talking about, like, hip-hop, hip-hop was not, it was looked, the culture and the essence of all of the elements was looked down upon. When I was growing up, it was strictly a street thing. It wasn't until 1979 where, you know, now, you know, I made a song. You know, you may have had a selection of the Sugar Hill Gang, had the, the biggest, largest, you know, uh, hit record, Rapper's Delight, you know, on, on the radio when that was, that, that was the year of the onset of the records, when records um, switched from, I mean, when, when the, art, the art of rap switched from, you know, street to record. In 1979. So when you guys do go to make the first record, um, is, is like a Sugar Hill Gang already out? Or, or not yes, quite now, yet? Keep in mind, but keep in mind, though, we were not a group that was put together, you know, during the record format. We were a group that was already on the streets of New York prior to making a record. Sugar Hill, I think, recorded their record like maybe like September, October. We recorded our song in November, and I think okay. Curtis Blow came out with his in December. And then you had um, you, you had a, a couple of more people that came out. But yes, the Sugar Hill Gang was the first to record the rap song on the Sugar Hill Records. But we came out, I think, like the next month or two and recorded our song on the Enjoy Records, which most of the um, hip-hop artists, that was from the, the streets of New York, was with, uh, was with Enjoy Records first, before right. they came over to Sugar Hill Records. So Enjoy Records was probably like the mecca for the, for the, um, the, mecca, the mecca record company for the, the, the uh, MCs that were rhyming on the street. You know what I'm saying? That was like the hardcore, you know, uh, that, right. that were like street, street rhymes. You know what I'm saying? That was like from the gut, gutter from the beginning. But then a lot of them came over to Sugar Hill Record and signed with with Sugar Hill as well. Sugar Hill Records, and nobody can can deny it that that's a song to this day that when you hear that song, it's it's, it's like contagious because it it, it brings back all the fun of what, you know, of, of let's just say not how rap started, but, you know, how when it was exposed to the masses, so outside right. of New York City, and so for for them when we heard it, we was like kind of upset, you know, happy but upset, and I'll tell you why. But the simple fact is that the song that they were rhyming off of was a song that we were rhyming off of in the streets in the park, right? Okay? Which was you know, the song that was already out, you know, what it was, was it Speak or what, you know, um, the, the song that they did was a song yeah. that was already, like, good times, there was already rapping through in the clubs now. But what we 
know that even though that good times was out at that time, good times was a song, but Sugar Hill, the Sugar Hill Gang and Sylvia Robinson shifted into a whole different way where that song sold more, more records than what good times actually did. Mm. You know, and this is what, what hip-hop songs was built on. We would take the songs, you know, from James Brown, any songs that you heard, you know, and, and um, back then that we were rhyming to, and don't get it wrong, you know, we talk about disco songs that were being played on the radio. Some were being played on radios and some were not being played on radios. But that's what rap music and the culture was built on. We would take the actual song that was being played on the radio and flip it so where now the song is a hit in the streets amongst young kids and not just disco, but also, you know, hip-hop culture and the kids that were in the streets. And we put our own twist to it. And so when you're talking about the Sugar Hill game, okay, well, they did good times songs, but good times was if, if you go back to the early cassette you would hear us rhyming to good times on cassette tapes prior to the Sugar Hill game making that song. But because Sylvia had a notion, and I'm talking about Sylvia Robinson, who was the you know, co-founder you know, you know, of, of Sugar Records, you know, her, her the rhyming to the songs one day when she went to a birthday party, you know, in Harlem, and said, listen, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not an idea. I'm, I'm about to record this. And she was already a recording artist already. And boom, now the Sugar Hill game is household name. Simply because a song that were already hot in New York City and hot from what we were rhyming to. Right. They put their rhyme on it. So now Sylvia so can put it out and expose it to the whole world. And this is how, you know, uh, the Rapid Delight became such a huge hit because the song along in New York was a hit. You know, for, for, for young, you know, uh, people that were already rhyming to that song in the streets or in, in clubs, you know. So it was, it was a song that was familiar with us, you know. And so, you know, now the world sees it on a whole different level. And you still have to be, and we, at that time as young kids, you know, some of us was, was upset because it was like, man, interest is just for them overnight. And we've been doing this for a long time. But at the same time, we're like, you know what? People are feeling the, what we're doing here back in the Bronx. So now, Sugar Hill Gang has opened up the doors for other people's songs to be able to go beyond New York City. Right. Well, now, even though we did have songs, they really opened up the doors because now they're playing Rappers and Light on the radio 24 children. So that was right. a good look for all of us because now maybe, just maybe, radio stations are going to take a chance on hip-hop music. And what was it like, like making rapping and rocking the house? Like, what was it like? It, it's, a, it's a live band, right? Well, back then, as I, as I said previously, when we, when we went in to do rapping and rocking the house, which was the longest rap song ever recorded, even longer than what the Sugar Hill Gang did, you know, until right. some people went back in and remixed it. Because there's, there's several versions to, to, to rapping and rocking the house, especially when the song was transferred over from 
from um, from uh, Enjoy Records to uh, Sylvia Robinson to um, Sugar Hill Records, which somehow they made a deal with the song that she could release that song as well. So for us doing rapping and rocking the house, which was like the longest rocking rap record, you know, recorded rap record ever. What we did was we actually went into studio and um, in the back of Bobby Robinson, which is no affiliation of Sylvia Robinson, that had enjoyed records. His, right. um, his nephew was Tony G. So what he said to, to um, Tony, I want you to tell me who is the, um, and this is what he told us, I want you to tell me who's the hottest group, hip-hop group in the street. Now, Tony was aware of, uh, that the Curious Five was out there as well, but he gave them out name, which is the Funky Fortress One, and this is what Bobby Robinson told us. So he said the Funky Fortress One. He met with him, in his uh, in the back of his uh, record store, which was like on 125th Street, you know, and we met with him. We went to talk to him about becoming on contract. Said, okay, come down. You know, um, I think it was like a week or two later. We went back to, you know, his record company, well, not record company, but his record store. We recorded the song and first tape. We had a drummer which his name was Punkin, which would yeah. go on to later record the songs for, you know, a lot of other artists under, you know, Enjoy Records. But we had him, and he did the drums. We went in, did it first take, and that was it. And what we did was we just rhymed. You know, nothing was prepared, nothing was rehearsed. We just said the rhymes that we normally would say, and we would use the hook that we would always use the hook and pass it on to the next person. That, that's how we did it in one phase. And but but where did the rest of the music come from? If it's just drum, it w that was a sample. It's that one drummer that we used, and um, I think they used um, sort of kind of like a little um, echo on it. But it was basically Punkin doing the the drummer. When we went in the studio, that was just him on the drum, and that's it. We didn't do okay. He did that, and then I guess maybe Punkin probably went in, you know, and did like, so some of like the, uh, his friends did like the gear talk, but when we went in to do the studio, that's, I mean, in the back of his record company, only thing we had was the drama, and that's it. How was that first single received? It was, it was crazy, you know, people yeah. were loving it, you know, that was a song that, you know, now people could have, and, you know, instead of us, them sharing our voices on cassette tape. This was a song that they could, they they can actually have, and so we traveled, you know, all over, you know, the world with that that song along, yeah. uh, along, you know. So it was it was a good feeling because now, you know, we were perceived as, you know, just recording artists because we had something. We were part of the first, you know, uh, uh, one set of hip hop music being transferred over. Records. You know, so not only were we just, you know, rhyming on the street, we had solidified ourselves as being, you know, one of the, the, the first rap groups, and I, I'd say the first hip-hop group, the actual hip-hop group. And I'm not talking about, you know, record format, but the actual hip-hop group that was on the streets of New York that were rhyming and that put their dudes in that had a song recorded on, on record. You went on the first rap tour. Really, right? That's you. You guys in sequence. Sequence, which some of the people, some of the people know, um, 
some of the the um that you know, there was Angie Angie Stone, you know, yeah. which which at that time her name was uh Angie B. Angie Angie Stone, uh Girl of Pearl and Blondie, you know. Um we went on tour with them, we went on tour with the Gap Band, we went on tour with uh Sky and Studio Game and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So it was like the first major rap tour in the history of hip hop. Well, and what, what were those shows like? Everywhere, everywhere. We it was it was crazy because people would travel. Because what Sylvia wanted to do was everybody that was out that was signed to her label. Yeah. She wanted to make sure that one had songs out. Everybody had songs out on Sugar Hill Records. So when we traveled, the people were familiar with our songs. So she would have right. begin to make sure that the record. Uh, the radio stations will push out songs in different cities. So when we go out there on tour, they already know our songs. And what she did was then she brought in the hottest group at that time in the early 80s that was Sky, and she brought in the hottest group in the early 80s that was um, the Gap Band. So they were a part of the Sugar Hill tour. And we traveled together all over the world, you know, major cities. Well, from Kansas to Florida to, I mean, every major city that you can imagine, uh, could imagine. We traveled these places to sold out crowds. And it right. was the awesome four. Yeah, it was an awesome four. Did the audience generally, like, say in, like, it's so hard for me to imagine in Kansas. We were superstars. In they, 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 yeah. they, they received that we were superstars because yeah. they knew the songs. They would sing along with the songs. Of course, you had the Sugar Hill Gang that had the hottest record so that was out there. Of course, that's the joint was out at the time. You had you have Funk You Up by the sequence. You don't funk you right on up. That was out at the time. You had Grandmaster Flash Song, you know, that was out at the time. You had the Gap Band. You had Sky. We all had hit records. And this right. is why the tour was such a phenomenal tour because we offered hip-hop and we offered R&B. So we was able to get people from all walks of life to come in and experience, you know, what we were doing back in the Bronx, but also, you know, the R&B as well. So it was, it was a tour that, that had a lot to offer for the people that wanted to come out and see the artists that, that had those hit records at the time. That's so cool for me to imagine. Yeah, like, it was. It was. And, and keep in mind, we were young. Right, we were young right. Kids, you know, at eight, 19 years old, 18 years old, we out on tour. You know what I'm saying? That traveling around the world, that was the craziest thing. Riding on, you know, our own buses, you know, taking flights, you know, back and forth. You know, we were living the life of a star, but actually, you know, um, not really knowing how to benefit from. Oh, financially. That and marketing as well, you know, as opposed to what you may see nowadays. Okay. Yeah. Because I guess it's all like the label kind of controlling it, right? Absolutely. In every every format, from manager, you know, to booking. I mean, well, they, they would bring people in to book, but, you know, not only was the manager, not only was you signed to label, but that, that, uh, label is also acting as your manager as well. Right, right. What was it like starting to 
record with them, like with the Sugar Hill Band? Well, the Sugar Hill Band was was a band that was like no other band you could even imagine. You know, they had mm. very talented musicians that will create the sound of an original song, of the original song, because that's right. what that music did. We recreated the sound of the original song. And sometimes they would make the sound come out better than what the original song that we were sampling came out. They had great engineers. They great, had great style, you know, and to work with them, if we say, Ethan, this is how we want to sound, and this is how we want, we want you to put them in, they knew exactly what you wanted. So when Sugar Hill Records hired these phenomenal, phenomenal musicians, they knew exactly what they did because they were musicians that were able to recreate the sound of the song that you were trying to reproduce. And as I said, made it sound even better than the song that you had in the beginning. I mean, that you were trying to, you know, record. Yeah, definitely. Was there tension within the group when you start to have these bands replaying the beats? And is there, you know, is there anything for for Breakout and Baron to, to do necessarily? Well, you know, that all started when we were going on tour, you know, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. say tension, but it was the way that everything was falling into place. Now, when we went on tour, we did not take, we, although we always used both DJs, Breakout was probably like the, DJ Breakout probably was like the, the fast pace, you know, um, break dance. Uh, B-Boy, B-Girl music that he would play. He was that type of person. And Baron, DJ Baron, was always the person that would play the mellow out disco music. And um, at first, you know, when Raheem came into place, Baron used to always like for Raheem to rhyme off the music that he played because he was more or less like that mellow uh, DJ that would play the mellow music that whenever you rhyme, you can actually hear your voice and it carries across the parks or the, or the, you know, or the, you know, the disco, you know, or where you were playing. Now, when we ordered rapping and rocking the house, you know, and that's the joint, you know, we had began, in the beginning, we would take DJ Breakout and Baron with us when we did rapping and rocking the house. It wasn't until we signed the Shibio record that and we went on tour, we only took one DJ. And so whether or not it was tension at that time, I don't, I don't even know if we really looked at it being tension, but um, for us, we still had our DJ. We had at least one DJ traveling with us on tour. Right, right. As well as uh, the Furious Five. They would take Grandmaster Flash out there with them because Grandmaster Flash was the show as well. You know, and so um, when it came to them recording on that, I mean, we still took our DJ out there to put on our songs and play our songs or scratch or do what we have, we needed to do out there. So I don't think the tension was too bad in the beginning. I mean, not for us. Maybe as time turns, you know, I don't know, you know, how it was for other people, but for us in the beginning, we still took one DJ, you know, with us out there, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. The band, um, for us, 
for for us who had DJs that started off from the streets, we didn't use the band when we went out on tour to re, to perform. It was the Sugar Hill Gang and um, Sequence that used the band because that's who they started out with, you know, that would do their songs and, and would play their songs to the team. But for us, we were MCs and, and DJs. We took our DJs with us. We didn't right, use a lot right. of that. Right. You can't. You can't get that together overnight, you know. You can't find somebody that can right. mix. Yeah, and, well, well, and and well, well, and 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 the sound that you wanted to portray, you know. Right. Don't get me wrong. When when um, the sequence came out and you had the Sugar uh, Hill Gang came out, they knew them songs. So even with it being a live band, they knew their parts. They knew exactly what was supposed to be played and how it was supposed to be played from the beginning. And the good thing about half the band that even if you mess up. Nobody ain't going to know because that band could pick up and you could pick up wherever you left off at, you know, because the band have more lead way to work with as opposed to you're doing the record, you know, verbatim or you have your DJ scratch. Everything has to be on point, you know. I saw a live clip of um, Funky 4 plus one more playing at um, The Kitchen. Yes. Um, just such a, I feel like it's such a beautiful video. I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Why? Because look, doesn't it show the essence of us being young at heart? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the Funky Four Plus One was the first hip hop group to really expose um, punk rockers to hip hop. Right. Now, although you may have had like, um, Bambada, you know, go down there and play music. We're talking about rhyming. We're talking about rapping. We're talking about, you know, the the whole DJ, all the elements of of us going down to the kitchen and the mud club and places like that. that. Those are where the punk rockers hung out. And so when we performed at places like that and the Ritz, we didn't know at that time that you had like the Beastie Boys in the crowd watching her right. before they were the Beastie Boys. And so you, so I remember one year um, they were being honored on VH1 and, um, and they were introducing themselves. And I think one of the commentators saying, who influenced you, you know, in hip hop. And they said the funky four plus one, you know, they give a take of how they was out in the crowd watching us perform, you know? And so when we talk about, you know, what it was like, you know, for, you know, back then or whatever, you know, when you're talking about people like the Beastie Boys that come out, you know, and, and, and tell, you know, how much influence that the Funky Four, that's one, have on their career is an honor. It's amazing to me, like, when I started listening to these old school tapes, um, I feel like all you guys, but you in particular, it seems like you're uh, out of all the MCs. It seems like you just go everywhere. Like you were doing the, the stuff at the kitchen, and then the stuff with you rapping on over Grandmaster Flash. And you said exactly. You yeah. said it exactly how it was. Exactly what you just said is like exactly what it is. And this is why I I say to you, 
that when you say nomadic MC, nomadic B-girl, nomadic B-boy, we were everywhere. And, you know, speaking of um, you guys playing in this downtown kind of scene, that that led that's what led to you playing on Saturday Night Live, right? Yes, it did. It did. I um, from what was told to us is that um, there was a young lady by the name of Miss Edit. We used to call her Miss Edit. You know that. You know she was friends with Fat Fat Freddy. You know, and so I guess at that time they heard that um, Blondie was. They were told that Blondie was. Uh, you know that that. Um, was going to host Saturday Night Live. But from what I've heard, my had came up to the Bronx and I think she saw Grandmaster Flash at one time, but she has never seen the, the Funky Four perform, but um, uh, that's how Freddie had. And because she was also friends with the, a young lady by the name of Miss Edit, which was really into the punk rock scene and, you know, the whole deep, you know, hip-hop and punk rock scene, you know, she was the one yeah. who recommended that we go on, you know, that we would be, you know, um, one of her guests on Saturday Night Live. Now, although she heard the Furious Five, very often first the Furious Five, she could have had her choice. But it was told to her the reason why she chose us because they had a female. So it kind of, okay, so now the world, they see the Sugar Hill Gang, and of course they heard, you know, Grandmaster Flashes and, you know, songs, so they had a house song out there, too. But to also just see a female, you know, doing it, you know, um, was crazy because to the world, we, you know, as opposed to any other groups that's out there now, now we, we were like, we had to look up young, innocent, young men and women. We had that innocent look, the, teen, the teenager looked at, but when we got on stage, we just went crazy. So she wanted to bring us on, uh, uh, you know, bring us on Saturday Night Live and open up a whole new world where now people, even on a, a larger level, even for the ones that didn't get to see us, tour that we not only is there males doing it, but look at this fellow as well. You know, out here on stage, young kids, innocent, rocking for, you know, the love of what they love. And so when you see her introduce us, she'll say, you know, these are the best street rappers. She didn't say anything about, you know, being like disco rappers or record makers or whatever. She said these are the best, one of the best street rappers. And this is why I would always love her for that, because that's what separated us from everybody else. We were street rappers, rappers before we were recording rappers. Right, right. I, I, I know it might be hard to say all these years later, but if you, like... I have a, I have did, a very good memory, sir. Oh, sure. Like, what was the, the reaction to that night? Well, the thing at the time, and I can tell you, Dan, that we did not know the power of being on Saturday Night Live. What mm. we did know is that now the world gets to see what we were doing back in the Bronx for so many years. Also, you know, it, it, it took us on to a whole nother level. Because back in New York City, when everybody is in money for every borough to every, you know, state, I mean, borough, you know, city, everybody, you know, they're announcing that the Funky Four one going to be on Saturday Night Live, people was glued to their channel. You know, they were glued because we was representing New York. We was representing the hip-hop culture on TV. You know, right, young right. people on TV. So now we do Saturday Night Live. We wake up the next morning. 
and everybody is going crazy. Now, we already local stars to, you know, the people in our community. But right. now we're not just community stars. We're also people worldwide. But still, we still don't know what we have done. It wasn't until many years later, decade or two later, you know, people begin to start talking. And you have philosophers. You have, you know, college professors. You have, you know, uh, magazines, you know, and all of that, you know, people, you know, talking about it. Okay, so we know we're on TV, right? But what we don't know, and I'm talking about the group, is that we made history. We can always go down in the history of, of music to ever be the first hip-hop group on TV. Now, I'm not talking about people who just came, you know, and made records. Right. We're talking about the first hip-hop group on national television. That ain't right. lot. Decades later, we say, wow. Now, whether or not they mention it or not, they can never take it away from us. So that is our claim to fame. We are the first hip-hop group on national television. Right, and that right. Is, is written in history. Yeah. And we yeah. didn't know the importance, and we didn't realize that until almost a decade later that we made history. Not for the things that we just did, not for all being the first female MC, or not for being the first MC part of the all-male group, but we was the first, you know, original group on TV, uh, on the streets of New York and, you know, this and that. But we made history by becoming the first hip-hop group on national television. Did that lead to more touring and, tra and traveling the country and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. We were still under uh, City Hill Records because yeah. um, at that time we were we were out on a road and we were on the Sugar Hill tour. And so we had to cut our tour short to come back to do Saturday Night Live because we were supposed to go back out again and they wind up putting another, putting the crash crew out on, out on tour for us because we had to come back in and prepare for the Saturday Night Live show. And so, yes, we had begun to, we, we still was doing more touring, but we sort of kind of like didn't wait for the, the record company to book our own tours. We had beginning to start booking our own shows ourselves. You know, uh, whether or not, you know, we, you know, uh, did it the correct way or not, but we had begun to start taking on the roles of booking our uh, own shows. And so what that led to is that instead of us having one person, I mean, well, instead of us, everybody knowing what the next person is doing when they're booking these tours, then you begin to have one person doing where that person would let the other person know what they were doing and money issues and all that stuff got into play. And once again, we're young and um, not really understanding the business of that dealing with promoters. And because we were our own promoters booking our own shows. But now we no longer had the manager that started, you know, um, booking the, the shows for us. We were doing it on our own, you know, even without Sylvia Robinson or the manager that we had previous when we first got together. We didn't understand the dynamics of, you know, what it takes and what to look out for, you know, and how to make sure that we receive our monies and not let just one person in the group, you know, um, handle all the financial aspects. And that's when... You had, you know, members of the group begin to start, you know, uh, not 
trusting or distrusting or not making really good business moves. And oh. so this is one reason why the group, you know, failed at our highest point, you know, that we were bad. At the end, because we were not aware and didn't really take matters into, into well, I should say we didn't seek advice of um, having someone manage us instead of letting a member of the group manage and, and then, uh, you know, be like the financial advisor or book the shows and that person knew what we were getting and the other members didn't know. It made a strain within the, the, uh, the group. And so, okay. as I said, we weren't, um, we weren't prepared for the outcome or the different strategies that we had to take to make sure that the group stayed together. You know, not knowing, as in any other group, you know, we're probably going through the same thing that we were going through, you know, but right. we knew we wasn't prepared mentally for the um, the way that the music industry was and what we should and what we should not, should not have done. Do, do you have a favorite of, say, besides the big hits, do you have a, a favorite song? So one of my favorites, I, of course, I like Do You Want to Rock because it shows yeah. the R&B side. I, I like rapping and rocking the house because it's synonymous with the onset, you know, of rap music, you know, in hip-hop culture, you know. Um, but but one of my favorites is, is Mexican because it represents yeah. that B-girl and B-boy. That is my favorite. And then, of course, I like Cars because we were catering towards the punk rockers. So I, right, I, I like right, them. Right. I, I, like, I, like, I like a lot of them simply because they represent the different styles of music and it shows the versatility of the Funky Four. It shows that we as a group, you know, and I say this as humble as I can, were versatile in more ways than one. We didn't just bring that same, you know, um, type of style. We was always remixing a different way that we could, you know, um, bring music, you know, to the era of, of style of music that we liked it. So we were catering to, we were still hip-hop, but when we do punk rock songs like Cars, we liked that because that was the era where we came from, too, who gravitated to hip-hop music, you know, and we did the Mexican, that was the area that we came from, the B-girl and the B-boy, you right. know, and so... The, the Do You Want to Rock is sort of like the disco R&B, you know, um, flavor because that was the area that we came from. So we were basically caring, you know, or, or really reliving the different parts of songs of style of music that made us who we are, you know, and, and that what we live by, you know. So when you look at it, you know, I, I all of them was favorite, favorite to me, I could say, because every last thing of the song that we did was sentimental in some way where we were showing that we were versatile as a group, but it was also an era in which we respected, you know, or genre of music that we respected. Yeah, that's that's my favorite, is the superstars. Really? Yeah. That is my favorite, too. A lot of people have never even heard of that, you know, before. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, superstars is my favorite, my favorite one. And that's another one, like you were saying with the band, like, it took me a while to even connect what what song you guys were referencing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Cause they had their yes. own spin on it, you know? 
Yeah. We call it cars yeah. because it was cars, but it was also we also call it superstars. Yeah. Right. 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 Yes. I'm surprised you heard that. Well, that's good. You okay? All right. That's, that's on. Uh, yeah, that's on the collection I have, which I, get, I guess Sugar Hill put out. Yeah, we did that on Sugar Hill. Yes. I wanted to ask, I, I know I, I kept you for a little longer than I said. I, I, we can start wrapping up, but... Um, okay, I, cool. I, 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 I did want to ask, you know, now there's a lot of efforts made to... Like, I referenced the book, Yes, Yes, Y'all, a couple of times, and mm-hmm. and there, there's been a lot of efforts made to go back and document things and get the story straight. Uh, what, yeah, what I still don't think that they have did it. They have not documented because... But, but it's really up to us to do it, you know, um, the Funky Four, and, and and that's what my next plan is. But um, I still haven't really think that they have really went back to the essence, you know, to mm. skip over it, you know. And I don't know because maybe I don't think it's important to them, but it is important because it's a part of history. But um, I think that the, uh, unless... I tell the story or the Funky Four tell the story, you know, it's the only way that that information will be released, you know? Right, right. And and, and I guess, the, yeah, that leads to, um, what, what is this thing that you're doing with Cornell, with the, the museum? Okay, well, with, with Cornell, of course, uh, I sit on the board as a national, as an advisor you know, for, yeah. the, uh, for the Cornell University. They're archiving and preserving, you know, you know, the history, you know, as well, and and also serve as a teaching facility for the hip hop culture. You know, I'm a vice member for that. But now I sit on the University Hip Hop Museum as an advisory member, and I'm also the chairperson in charge of preserving the women's hip hop history. And I'm very excited about that, simply because I've always been a Adamant. I always been a person who was adamant about hip hop having a place in the Bronx, a place in the Bronx. Why? Mm. Simply because you have the Smithsonian Institute, and also you have Cornell University, who I'm a part of, who supposedly um, the University Hip Hop Museum will, will be in a joint venture with them. But my love has always to make sure that okay, well, you know, it's, it's okay to share the wealth. But what better place to have and preserve the history and the culture but the Bronx? You understand what I'm saying? Because right. people can come all over the world and, 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 and see stuff and, and um, dismiss on the Institute, or they can go up to Cornell University, which have a huge selection of artifacts, and they can see that. But I also felt like the Bronx should have a place of their own be able to hold these artifacts as well, since that is the birthplace of their pop culture. So this museum would not only be about the Bronx. Yes, hip-hop started in the Bronx. Yes, the inception and all the elements were in the Bronx. But this museum is for all of us, for everybody around the world. It's not just for the, the MCs or the rappers or the DJs or the graffiti artists in the Bronx. It is people that around the world and people in different states you know, in counties and cities that has brought their legendary status to the culture, you know, pioneering, you know, people, unsung people who people don't even know about that has 
a lot to do with the culture of hip-hop. So this is about all of us. This is about, this museum is for all of us and not just pertain to the history of the Bronx. Yes, we will start off, give people the insight of what it's about, but this is a museum for all of us. Right. Around the world, yes. Is there anything else coming up you want to mention or anything? Well, I, I just want to let people know that I do have a book out. Um, it's called Luminary Icon. You know, um, it's an audio. If you want to get it on audio, it's on iTunes. You know, they can get it from iTunes or, you know, they can basically um, order it from me or they can order it on Amazon, you know, that way. If they order it from me through my website, which is www.mcshawrockonline.com, I will autograph it for them and, and send it back to them. You know, you get it from Amazon. Amazon will notify me, and it gets sent to you through Amazon. Or you can download it. I, I wanted to make it easy and accessible for you to be able to download it, you know, from iTunes and Boom or any, you know, a basic um, phone that you have. You can download it right there, and you can listen to it. And I hope you enjoy my story, or you can get it from my website, as I said before. Um, I, I push that. You know, I'm working on um, making sure that I um, secure, you know, this this women's um, advisory board where we can preserve, you know, the history of women in hip hop. You know, I travel around the world and do speaking engagements, you know, to different universities. And um, I may be in your city as well. And if you, anybody out there that's listening that wants Shavlock to, to uh, come to this city and talk about culture or, you know, host an event, that's what I do, uh, or anything for that matter, I'm available. You know, you can reach out to me, luminaryicon.gmail.com uh, is my, uh, you know, email address. And once again, it's L-U-M-I-N-A-R-Y-I-C-O-N at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, MC Shawrock one Luminary Icon, that's me. And that's how you can reach me. Oh. Well, thank you so much. It was such an honor to talk to you. So there you have it. Thank you once again to Shah Rock, and we'll see you next week.